So I can call this a podcast now because I put it on podcast tech. Um, and so it is a legitimate podcast. It's Mr. Matheson's Poetry Podcast. Um, well done, anybody who got to the end of my last podcast. That was quite a struggle. Um, almost an hour long, pretty dense. I went, I did go back to it and listen to it again. And I thought, well, there's a lot of stuff here. Um, I hope you enjoyed bits of it. I guess you got to read some nice poems, some good poems. Um, and I think what I want to do now is maybe just go go ahead with this, um, but try to make the, 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 the podcasts a little bit more focused. Okay, one of the things, looking back at the at your um, comments about textual analysis, the one thing that kept coming through was poetry. Um, and so I think maybe looking at this with one eye on the textual analysis course um, would make a lot of sense. So I'm going to look at a poem today by uh, a poet called Ted Hughes, and it's a poem of his called Daffodils. Um, I'll send, I'll post that up next to this. Um, best thing to do is just put me off and read through the poem once, if you haven't done already, just get a sense of what's coming up. Um, We are so I'm going to talk about the poem and we're going to look at, at what it is. You know, what we need to do in textual analysis is respond to an unseen poem. So we need to start to think about how we respond to poems. I want to remind you of the main take home, I guess, from the last podcast was the idea that poems don't have meanings. Forget the idea that a poem is pointing you somewhere else. It's, it's not. Um, it really isn't. It's, it's, it's a moment of feeling, a moment of, of connection. Um, it's, it, it, there, there's no such thing as not understanding a poem. You can be baffled by a poem. You can just not, you know, <laughs> really. But you can, you can enjoy a poem that you don't understand, that you don't, you don't understand the meaning of. And lots of poems have been written that, that aren't intended to be understood. Okay, this poem, Daffodils, kind of is intended, has a, is purposed in a way, if you like. Okay, so you really need to know a little bit about Ted Hughes to understand this poem. So Ted Hughes, what can I say about him? He was uh, writing in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. In fact, I think this poem, I don't know when it was written, but it was released in 98, I think, in a book, book called Birthday Letters. So Ted Hughes, a poet, um, interested, a lot of his poetry is about animals. I remember reading him in school, actually. Um, the Thought Fox, um, a lot of it is about nature and animals and the, the natural environment. Um, quite so not not hard to read actually not not difficult to read but very dense dense with imagery um a very thick kind of clotting kind of imagery very masculine in that respect 
very um, lots of sound words. And, you know, as a writer, he was very interested in myths, in um, myth making and how religion is something else. You'll find that in quite a lot of his poems and you'll find it here, actually. So we're going to we're going to look at that. Now, in 1963, Ted Hughes married Sylvia Plath. Sylvia Plath, I think I'll probably look at a Sylvia Plath poem, maybe even next, but um, he and Sylvia Plath were married and Sylvia Plath took her own life in 1968. And she took her own life in the context of Ted Hughes, I, I think, was going off and having affairs and things and subsequently lots of you know it was it, Ted Hughes got it quite tight um and I don't know I don't I, I choose not to make judgments about other people's behavior but um he got it tight actually Ted Hughes's next wife also committed suicide so it started to, to you know it slightly uh, smacks of carelessness Think maybe Oscar Wilde might say, but um, his third wife didn't commit suicide, so that's kind of a happy ending for Ted, anyway. Um, but he kind of got blamed by a lot of people um, for the death of Sylvia Plath. People can be very judgmental, and people can be very protective of people um, that they admire. Um, naturally, I can understand that. Um, I don't make a judgment on it whatsoever, but it kind of did for Ted Hughes as a as a as a poet. He kind of went into retirement. He sort of became a little bit more um, reclusive. Okay, so the book that I'm going to read from is called The Birthday Letters, and it came out totally unexpected. Bob Dylan's got a new album coming out next week. And he hasn't made one for 12 years and everybody's going, wow, Bob Dylan's got a new album. Um, I think he's working all the time, but, you know, on different things. And suddenly there's a late sort of flowering. Well, this book was very much like that. You know, nobody had heard anything from Ted Hughes for a long time. Uh, there was a bit of a kind of Twitter storm going on around him. I don't think they had Twitter then, but it was the equivalent of a Twitter storm. And... Um, the upshot was that this book appeared and it was a book it was called the birthday letters and um a letter that the idea of, of of each one of them being a letter is quite sort of important and they were all about sylvia they were all about loss regret mourning bereavement memory reflection marriage um harm all of these things it's a very very beautiful collection um it's kind of got a tonal there's a sort of tonal similarity across the poems we'll talk about it a little bit about that in connection with daffodils that this this is one of them so this poem is about sylvia plath and his memories of sylvia plath he calls her you so it's quite handy <laughs> you you know who you means there's there's reference in this poem to his daughter as well who was a young child at the time that the events of this poem are set um before i start 
I better say any poem that's called daffodils um, is almost certainly going to be reflecting another very famous poem which is often called daffodils but actually isn't called daffodils that, that, I know that right that makes loads of sense um, it's actually called I wandered lonely as a cloud I think um, but it refers to daffodils and it's such a famous poem that you can't write a poem called daffodils without in some way reflecting on it too so that might be worth going and having a look at I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on higher or vales and hills when all at once I saw a crowd a host of golden daffodils it's William Wordsworth and it's 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 pretty it's pretty standard fear um, in it he is walking he did a lot of that um, he comes across some daffos and he observes them and he just feels great joy this ref reference to the the, the the daffodils dancing dancing in the breeze and both those ideas crop up in the poem we're going to read dancing and breezes I shall return to um, my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils so the daffodils there are, are a source of joy and they nourish the poet later in his memory as well as they do in nature so that's really what that poem's doing and where it's going okay so you've read through daffodils and i'm going to go through and, and, and do a little bit of a textual analysis remember poems don't mean anything poems don't take us anywhere further than what they are the things i'm going to talk about here are st structure and tone there's various sort of techniques that he uses throughout and the, the general theme um of the poem so if you just if you're just looking at the poem you immediately get a sense of it being open um unstructured um there is not a regularity to the line length there is no regularity to the, to the stanza length so it starts with quite long stanzas two long stanzas and it's hard to tell from me whether the next stanza crosses over or whether it's a two-liner um i think it might just be a two-liner and then you know it becomes a bit more spasmodic and it's interesting I, my eye fell on the word spasms there on the poem um because it does the the, the, the stanzas um get shorter get smaller and there's something there that's about pace and whenever you're looking at a poem and you're seeing that well it is about pace the, the writer's moving the pace around much more quickly so there's change there's straight away we can see just visually looking at the poem we can see change and we can see development and that's really what we're trying to trying to find um when we're doing textual analysis so there's these uneven stanzas line length is jumps around massively sinking deeper is one line um your daughter came with her armfuls eager and happy as another so there's there's not there's nothing similar there okay so this, when you've got those kind of long stanzas i'm intuitively just thinking narrative so there's something i'm being told something here i'm being told a story um so it's it's it, there's there's a narrative here a name for this kind of thing well some people would call this a prose poem and that's fine that works 
prose and poetry. It's a kind of blending of the two. It lacks that kind of um, poetic um, economy. It lacks that kind of poetic focus. It's much more rambling and narrative than that. And yet it's, it's the, the, you know, it's not written, it's not presented as prose, it's presented as poetry. And in actual fact, that's kind of important because we're going to go from looking at it as starting quite prosy and then becoming a lot more poemy um, as we go through. And you'll see what I mean by that as we do it. Okay, so remember how we picked the daffodils. We, obviously, is the third word there, we, the, the personal pronoun. Um, it's very personal. We know we, we need to know who the characters are. We need to know who the narr narrator is. We need to know who he's talking about. We know who he's talking about. He's talking about Sylvia Plath and he's talking about his little daughter. Um, and it starts with a question. Okay, so it's got this kind of conversational, sort of rambling sort of a tone. Um, there's something we'll get on with we'll get on to tone in a minute but opening with the question leads him into um a, a, a kind of narrative about an experience nobody else remembers but i remember look remember that the, the the two uses of the word remember that comes that peering comes all the way through the poem remembers remember um there's something meditative about it as though the repetition of remembers is is the the repetition there is is him meditating or ruminating on a memory and a memory is is what the poem is about don't forget that little idea of splitting the line in half nobody else remembers but i remember that that comes back a couple of times. Your daughter came with her armfuls. Your daughter. I know in my house, if I ever talk to Maggie about your son did this, it's usually because I'm not very happy with them. Um, I think um, maybe I'm not being fair. Obviously, the, the your ties the two female characters in this poem together. Implies each other. Your daughter came with her armfuls, eager and happy, helping the harvest. So you notice the alliteration there, but notice also the peering, eager and happy, helping the harvest. There's two and two, and there's a split between the two. So we've got those peers again. She's forgotten. She cannot even remember you. And we sold them. It sounds like sacrilege, but we sold them. Hear those sounds. It sounds like sacrilege, but we sold them. There's a kind of disbelieving tone there. There's something there that's very much about regret we sold them the repetition of we sold them coming at the end of those two lines lines five and six um, there's a there's a strong sense of regret there notice the short sentences um, again there's something going on with the sentence structure he's it's as though he's trying to tell a story in a very simple way we sold them. It sounds like sacrilege, but we sold them. What do you think of the sounds at this point? Uh, there's lots of that sibilant S sound. There's something smooth about it. Um, there's something lyrical about it. Um, it's a nice sound. It's it's it, it. You know, we can imagine slowing down and reading this aloud. 
Were we so poor? Another question. Old Stoneman the grocer, boss eyed his blood pressure purpling to beetroot. And then a digression. It was his last chance he would die in the same great freeze as you. Um, there's that sense that he's, well, it's a letter, isn't it? He's, he's moving off the point. He's moving back to the point. He's discursive. He's, 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 he's noticing things as he writes. Um, the start of the next stanza is besides, we, we weren't sure we wanted to, you know, it's as though he's having a conversation with the subject of the, of the poem. It's so personal and so intensely personal. Um, he would die in the same great freeze as you. Well, there's obviously a double meaning there. He would die in the same great freeze as you. Now, and one, the, the, the denotation of that is in the same winter as you, the same great freeze as you. But of course, there's a connotation also, isn't there? And the, the, the great freeze refers perhaps to... Um, Well, it could, we don't need to know exactly what it refers to. It refers to a, a, some kind of a struggle, some kind of pain, some kind of... Um, and, and, and it would tie up with the idea that Sylvia Plath was a woman who suffered greatly from bipolarism, from mental illnesses of different kinds. She was lobotomised at one stage, which doesn't sound like a great deal of fun. Um, she wasn't. She wasn't a well woman. Um, so we've got the double meaning there, the, the conative and the denative meeting. The same great freeze as you. He persuaded us. Every spring he always bought them sevenpence a dozen, a custom of the house. Besides, so, that, you know, we're coming back to that kind of spontaneous asides and deviations. Besides, we still weren't sure we wanted to own anything. Mainly we were hungry to convert everything to profit. Still nomads, still strangers. Again, the splitting reinforced with the S sounds. Um, the lyrical mo mood, the lyrical tone is continuing. Still nomads, still strangers to our whole possession. The daffodils were incidental, were incidental gilding of the deeds treasure trove they simply came and they kept on coming treasure trove the, t -t the gilding of the deeds were incidental gilding of the deeds now look at that line the daff and, he and hear it almost close your eyes and hear it the daffodils were incidental gilding of the deeds listen to the the does the way he's using the d sounds which he hardens into for the next line, treasure trove. The daffodils were incidental gilding of the deeds. Gilding of the deeds, treasure trove. They simply came and they kept on coming, as if not from the sod, but falling from heaven. Now, all of this, I'm getting Wordsworth's daffodils really strongly. It's just this that whole idea that the daffodils are the beauty of the earth. They represent the, the richness of, of the renewed gift the renewed pact with god or whoever you want to call it um what a fleeting glance of the everlasting daffodils are well that's almost straight from the idea of the wordsworth poem and so far so sort of 
positive, beneficent, um, never identified the nuptial flight of the rearest ephemera, our own days. That's the kind of sort of um, seize the day kind of idea, the, the rearest ephemera, our own days, blink and you'll miss it, um, life, which comes up in a, in a lot of poems, but it, it moves very quickly. In this line, we thought they were a windfall, never guessed, they were a last blessing. So that's turned the whole thing on its head. All of that kind of positive idea around the daffodils is gone. And we've got the idea of a last blessing, which of course is a religious idea. So he's, he's bringing religion into the poem. This attempt to mythologize, to find a kind of mythological significance to things. And that marks a very notice, noticeable change in, in tone. In a way, he's told us the story of the three people and what they were doing and they were selling these daffodils. He's going to get into much more poetry now. Okay, We're looking for markers, change, things that we can identify in a poem. We're getting into the bit with the shorter stanzas, the less, the, the, the more chaos. Um, chaotic but structured sonically, structured um, in terms of imagery, so there's there's much more imagery from here on in. So we sold them. We worked at selling them as if employed on someone else's flower farm. You bent at it in the rain of April, your last April. Rep the repetition of April, the rain of April, your last April. Again, the divide, the split between the two and the marker of April, which takes us to the time of Easter, um, the time of daffodils as well, of course, all of that kind of thing is starting to, we're starting to understand that Easter is a symbol here. We bent there together. We've got bent repeated. And then in the second last line, in the second last stanza, we've got her stooping. You bent at it. You stooping there. It's, to me, there's something there that's kind of visual. Like he's got a visual image of Sylvia Plath that he can't let go. And she's in that um, visual image, she's bending. It, it seems too repetitious to be to be chance that that, that bending down to the earth is is reflected so often in the poem. And to me, it makes sense that you know when he when he imagines that day when he goes back there, she's bending maybe you know a, a short distance from him in the rain of that April, your last April. We bent there together amongst the soft shrieks of the jostled stems, the wet shocks shaken of their girlish dance frocks. Wow. The soft shrieks of their jostled stems, the wet shocks shaken of their girlish dance frocks. There's so much going on in that line in terms of sound. Soft shrieks, wet shocks shaken, you know, that... Um, the, the, the shh, and it's punctuated with the the the, duh, the jostled stems, the t in stems, the wet shocks shaken, and the soft shrieks. Obviously, we've got onomatopoeia happening near. We've got this kind of sense of sound, but it's not a nice sound. It's it's a shriek, 
We talked about lyricism before. We talked about the smooth, lyrical, nostalgic feel of the, the opening of the poem. We're starting to, we're, we're, we're kind of not in Kansas now. Soft shrieks, the, sh the wet shocks shaken of the girlish dance frocks. Well, the dance frocks is, a, is an ex explicit mention of daffodils. Um, Wordsworth talks about the daffodils dancing in the breeze. Um, here, the they're in their girlish dance frocks. So it's, a, it's an explicit reference there. Fresh open dragonflies, wet and flimsy. Those, the flies coming up in flies and flimsy and fresh, fresh open dragonflies, wet and flimsy, opened too early. There's a portentous um, an idea. Okay, we piled their frail, frailty lights on a carpenter's bench, distributed leaves amongst the dozens. Listen to this for sound. Buckling blade leaves, limber, groping for ear, zinc silvered, propped their raw butts in bucket water. There's so much sound going on there, we've almost lost meaning. Um, what is actually going on? Who, who knows what's going on? What is what? groping for ear? I mean, that's there's something dangerous about that, something frantic, something, um, you know, zinc silvered propping their raw butts in bucket water, their oval meaty butts, and sold them sevenpence a bunch. There's, the tone's completely changed, doesn't it? Um, there's much more poetry here. This is pure poetry. This is pure feel, feeling or moment or light dropping, a, you know, dancing on a scene. Um, and it's not very nice. Um, to me, there's something there about the next stanza. Wind wounds, spasms from the dark earth with their odourless metals, a flamey purification of the deep grave stony cold as if ice had breath. Now that's very dark. Wind wounds, spasms from the dark earth. For me, it's this idea, instead of having the beautiful dancing daffodils, here we've got this idea that somehow the daffodils are purifying the earth, detoxifying the earth. That the, the what what is it about metal odorless metals, um, a flamey pur purification of the deep grave, stonely cold. This idea that they're pulling up the toxins from the earth and re and, and releasing them into the wild is this idea that they're poison, that they're somehow like a poultice pulling an infection out of something, which is so far from the, 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 the Wordsworth, you know, and it's quite deliberate that we have those two ideas in our mind at once. Um, but there's something not very nice there, as if ice had breath, which is a form of simile, but it's taking us in colder, darker. We're into the realms of, of death, of toxicity of release but releasing or purifying something unpleasant we sold them to wither so there wasn't even a, a you know as soon as you pluck something it's it starts dying we sold them to wither the crop thickened faster than we could thin it so there's abundance there but it's not a nice abundance finally we were overwhelmed 
and we lost our wedding present scissors. Look at the how that line, that stanza builds to a climax and then replaces the climax with, with, with bathos. Ba bathos, whoa. We sold them to wither. The crop thickened faster than we could thin it. That sense of abundance, that sense of something growing, growing almost out of control. Finally, we're we were overwhelmed. And the consequence of that was that they lost their scissors. But they weren't just scissors. They were wedding present scissors, and that's important. Um, and we, we lost our scissors. That's that's an anticlimax. That's bathos. Coming to where the climax is and replacing it with an anticlimax. Um, but it introduces the idea of the wed wedding present scissors that he's going to use from here on in. Every March, since they have lifted again out of the same bulbs, the same baby cries from the thaw. I don't know about you, but baby cries is a pretty... Ugh, Oh, that's a really, really raw image, um, as though the the, the colour there's there's synesthetic quality to it, as though the, the bright colour becomes a bright sound, and that bright sound becomes a baby's cry. Um, quite, there, there, there's horror there for me. Um, baby cries from the thaw, and then this beautiful image: ballerinas too early for the music. Well, that brings us back to the girlish dance frocks, doesn't it? So it links there, and it links to the dancing flowers in um, Wordsworth. But of course, it's again, it's a broken image. It's a partial image because the ballerinas are too early. They've missed their opportunity to dance. Um, there's something there about time, about time not not being in where it should things not staying where they're put time not being trustworthy shiverers in the drafty wings of the year on that same groundswell of memory and we've got the, the, the fluttering they return to forget you stooping there there's a paradox there isn't there it's talking about memory brings the word memory in and then fluttering they return to forget how can a memory forget? Um, so the stuff there that's about memory and, for, and forgetting, they return to forget you stooping there. There's the visual image that I was talking about earlier. Behind the rainy curtain of a dark April, snipping their stems. Note April at the end of the line there. We've already had April repeated before and we're just about to have that again. But somewhere... Your scissors, remember, wherever they are. Here, somewhere, blades wide open. But somewhere, your scissors, remember, somewhere. So we're, we've, we've lost a sense of time. We're losing a sense of place now. Things are falling apart. Somewhere, and they're going to be replaced by the image that he has in mind, that he spent the whole, whole poem preparing us for. But somewhere, your scissors... Remember, there's something there. I can't remember the name of the the, the technique. Um, look it up. Where you take a part and have it stand for the thing. There's something going on there. Your scissors remember. It's not that you remember. or You know, there's something about the idea of a, a scissor remembering that's really standing for something else, I think, there. Wherever they are. Here, somewhere. Repetition of somewhere reinforcing that kind of loss of position blades wide open we're into the unknown so what shape does the scissor make when you open the blades 
it makes the shape of a cross, April by April, sinking deeper through the sod, an anchor, a cross of rust. And so we've got the scissor there and we've got the a remarkable double image at the end. He's using the scissor to symbolise an anchor. In other words, something that we can hold on to, something that weighs us down, something that keeps us in place. This idea that somehow the memory, the half memory, the lost memory of those daffodils can act as an anchor, can keep us focused. Well, that's there from Wordsworth, isn't it? it but in, in Wordsworth, it's a positive idea. Here, it's grief. Here, the grief is an anchor. Now, an anchor can be seen as a good thing. But, of course, an anchor can also be a very restricting thing. Um, grief, if grief is your anchor, then perhaps it's not as benign as we would want it to be. A cross of rust, and of course, we talked about the, the, the religious imagery coming in with the last blessing earlier on. Now we finish off this section with a cross of rust. Both of the two, if the, the poem's in two halves, then both halves end with a religious image of some kind. Um, crosses on gravestones, a cross of rust. But it's a religious marker, it's reminding us brings us back to April, the, the, that constant repetition of April. And the double image at the end kind of completes that idea of things doubling throughout the poem. So, okay, we've got to the end. What have we noticed? Well, when we when we first looked at the poem, we, we, we had some ideas about the form, the, the prose poem idea, the the free verse kind of idea, there's no rhyme, there's no um, structural um, glue holding it together. So we need to look somewhere else for, for um, glue in order to give it shape. And what we see is tonal change. So we start with that very prosy narrative sort of long section, which then gets inverted into a much more chaotic, scattered, poetic um, section that brings us through a series of images to the point that um, that Hughes wants wants to get us to. That somehow, through all this remembering and forgetting and forgetting and remembering, and the and the chaos of all of that, he arrives at an image of of being anchored by this memory, this, this grief that, that he, he, he can't help but express in the poem. Um, so the tonal change helped us to understand it and we get a symbolic anchor at the end of the poem which explains you know, what the poem in, itself was. So we've moved also tonally from a kind of wistful, nostalgic, lyric kind of um, tone and then it becomes much more chaotic frenzied dramatic melodramatic maybe in places um, there's a sense of melodrama in there the flamey purification of the deep grave stony cold as if ice had breath and melodrama is something that is 
people readers of Hughes will be familiar with because he does he does use it in a lot of his poems so we've got that tonal change it goes from being quite um, again narrative to becoming a slew of images we get the images of the ballerinas of the daffodils and then it becomes the the, the huge image the huge religious iconography of the cross um, scissors interestingly what, what are they used for they're they're they're, they're cut they're, they're things that cut things that can do harm things that do harm to these daffodils um the things for hacking slicing cutting um and that's where he chooses to land the poem um and it's about loss and the symbols become the sim the, the, the scissors become the symbol for his his larger loss and th that loss is, has attached itself to a mythic kind of sig significance again it's another criticism that's given to Hughes that he was self-mythologizing um, but he, he certainly gives likes to give things a mythological metaphoric sort of bump every now and again and I think his poems are no, no worse for it okay so in terms of textual analysis that's what we're trying to do we're trying to understand the context of the poem and then look at it and just say well what's going on here what am I hearing Hughes is very much about sound and in the second half of the poem we can really start to to feel that the last thing probably to to say is that um that thing of starting a poem and basing it sort of in a sense on another poem obviously the more that you know about poetry the easier you're going to find that Okay then, um, right, listen back, realised I had I'd left a couple of things that I think are maybe quite important out. Okay, so I said, I made a whole thing about the idea of splitting, of splitting ideas, splitting things, um, and repeating words. So April and remember were two that, that came up. Um, that might be called anaphoric to a degree. Um, remember anaphora or anaphora is repeating ideas so i have a dream you know coming back with a refrain of something and using a single word that way so use of april april on april might be anaphoric that might be a word you could use to describe it but more important than that the whole point really i wanted to make was that to link that to the idea of the scissors um because scissors are split that's that's what scissors are you have two handles and you squeeze them together and you split them apart that's what our final image is created out of obviously they're for cutting but they're also two parts that go together um, and i think there's something going on there with the splitting the word i was looking for in the middle when i was talking about your scissors remember is, is he really saying that the scissors remember or is he remembering remember metonym a metonym is where you put a word in to stand for another word or stand for another idea obviously on one sense he does mean that the scissors remember they're they're out in the field where this was done and their existence is an act of remembrance of what was happening but in one sense he's talking about himself remembering so putting the scissors in there is, is using a metonym using a word to stand in for something else 
Um, it's quite a complicated idea, I think, that one. Um, but there's, and finally, just to reinforce kind of what the theme of the, the poem is and, and how it all is bound together, it's about loss. Loss is the theme of the poem, and it, as it is for a number of the birthday letters poems. Um, but the, the loss of memory, because there's a lot of stuff here about remembering and forgetting. So it's about losing the, the security of, of a perspective. So no one else remembers, but I remember. The idea that memory is insecure, you can't rely on it, you can, it won't be there forever. It's fleeting. Um, there's something insecure about even memory. And I think that's the, the sense of loss. And obviously, just the loss of the, of the scissors in the meadow. So somewhere there is a pair of scissors lying in a in a in a, a meadow and th that that is is kind of central to what's going on um there the, the, the tying all of that idea of loss up okay just thought it was worth jumping in and Okay, so um, there we are. That's Daffodils by Ted Hughes. Hopefully you've learned a little bit about Ted Hughes. You might be ready for some Sylvia Plath. And with every poem um, that we look at, maybe we might get feel a bit more confident about looking at poetry, particularly when we think that, you know, no, nobody expects to understand everything that's in a poem. We don't need to worry about that. Honestly, there's far more things in life to worry about than if you understand every idea in a poem. Um, it's getting a shape, getting a sense and having the confidence to, to just do it. Okay, so this is the end of the second part. Uh, what, what, what did we decide with this was going to be? A podcast. And you are podcasts, which is excellent. Um, if anybody's got anything they would particularly like me to look at for the for the next one, just let me know. And um, yeah, cheerio! Oh, I can't stop this. Podcast, 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 podcast.